0: Progress.
1: Good afternoon and welcome both to our presenters today and also to our audience on Zoom and on YouTube. I'm Beverly Zabrisky and I'm here to welcome you on behalf of the founder and director of the Helix Center, Edna Sessian. I'm a Jungian analyst who is on the executive committee of Helix. And we're very pleased to be able to address this incredibly um, current and exciting field with you today. And we've had a wonderful response from these panelists. And I'm going to tell you just a bit about each of them. And then I'm going to ask them to describe their research rather than my reading to you about their research. So the program will be um, this description, this presentation of the panelists, and then um, their discussion, and then a Q&A at the end. And please submit your questions to the panelists via either YouTube or Zoom. So to move forth with here, Patricia Daly is an Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. She's co-chair of the Affect Studies University Seminar, Gender and Sexuality Studies Council and the Colloquium for Early Medieval Studies. Her book, Promised Bodies, looks at the way women's mystical texts of the Middle Ages offer us an embodied sense of living the way one reads. Her current research focuses on the experience of poetics and the ubiquitous of what we think of as the literary in early medieval England. She's translated many works and her teaching and research involves contemporary philosophy and critical theory, including what these fields might teach us about the nature of psychedelic experience and its relation to memory, trauma studies, and ecstatic experience. Elias Dacquar, MD, is an associate professor at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, an addiction and general psychiatrist. He's been researching novel treatments for addictions for over a decade. A special focus of his research has been evaluating sub-anesthetic ketamine infusions for cocaine use disorders as well as investigating ketamine infusions as an adjunct to mindfulness-based treatment, mind-body practices, motivational interviewing. He has a more general interest in the impact of contemplative and non-ordinary experience and of the interventions that might occasion them. Nesse Devineau, is a postdoctoral assistant, excuse me, associate at the Institute for Research and Sensing at the University of Cincinnati. And he's an affiliate scholar at the Center for Psychedelic Drug Research and Education at Ohio State University and the Medicine Society and Cultural Research Fellow with Pomposia, it's a wonderful word, Pomposia. She previously completed a postdoctoral Doctoral Fellowship in the Department of Bioethics at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. Her research focuses on the function of metaphor and other literary devices and narrative accounts of psychedelic experiences in addition to studying bioethical approaches to psychedelic medicine. Her group has been awarded the best humanities publication in psychedelic cities from the breaking convention in 2016, and they are currently participating in the first qualitative study of patient experience where she's... uh, the New York Public Library Timothy Leary Papers and Research Fellow with New York University Silobillin Cancer Anxiety Study. Alex Kwan is a neuroscientist whose work is focused on the neurobiology of antidepressants. He's known for using sophisticated optical imaging methods to study how drugs such as ketamine and psychosylobin modify the structure and function of brain circuitry. His research has been published in top peer-reviewed journals. He has a PhD in applied physics from Cornell and is currently an associate professor in the treatment in the Department of Psychiatry at Yale University. You can follow him on Twitter and he'll tell you how else to follow his research. Stephen Ross has been a pioneer and leader in the study of alternative medications. He's a research associate professor of psychiatry and child adolescent psychiatry at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. (laughs) He's a founding member of the NYU Psychedelic Research Group and is currently associate director of the NYU Langone Center for Psychedelic Medicine. And he's director of the Psychedelic Medicine Research Training Program. In his 21 years at NYU in Bellevue, he's been involved in administration teaching research. And he previously was director of the Center for Addiction Psychiatry at Tisch. So, He will tell you some of of the other venues and directions of his research in the process of our discussion. And now um, I want to hand over to the participants and ask them to just immediately speak and share with us their profound knowledge of something that many of us are only just learning about. Thank you.
2: Well, let me just add, um, uh, Beverly, that I'm, I'm, I'm nominally on this panel, although I'm not an expert in this field. I'm Gerald Hurwitz, and I'm the Associate Director at Helix, and I'm typically your um, devoted, or often your devoted moderator for many of these talks. I'm a clinical neuropsychiatrist and psychopharmacologist on faculty at Columbia as well, so I just found this to be a really wonderful and interesting Timely topic, and thought I would love to take part also as a panelist. And I'll just say that maybe what we might do is start off with a a little bit of a historical background. Does anyone want to take a shot at that, sort of describing a little about the history of psychedelics? Well, thank you, thank you, Jerry. Sure.
3: I could talk a little bit about the history of psychedelics and psychiatry. Uh, The first wave of psychedelics um, started in 1943 when Albert Hoffman accidentally discovered LSD. And over the next 25 years or so, there was a really large amount of research that took place mostly with LSD. It ended up being uh, close to 40,000 participants that were studied. And the most promising clinical indications was the use of LSD-assisted psychotherapy to treat. Uh, alcoholism uh, at the time. There were thousands of people that underwent that treatment model. There were several randomized controlled trials. Um, the next most studied indication was the use of LSD assisted psychotherapy to treat uh, psychiatric and existential distress in terminal cancer. And there was also work done um, by Eric Cast looking at LSD as a treatment for refractory pain syndromes in patients that had end-of-life cancer. Uh, so those were the, the two most promising research areas. Uh, but psychedelics were, were legal for a period of time then. They were used by clinicians throughout the world, including psychoanalysts, used them as a tool to the unconscious. Um, there was enormous safety data that was collected on them. Um, but before they could sort of move forward to larger controlled trials to establish safety and efficacy, uh, they got caught up in the counterculture movement and the war on drugs, uh, Richard Nixon declared Timothy Leary the most dangerous man in America and um, the Controlled of Substance Act was enacted in 1970 and it, it sent psychedelic research into the deep freeze uh, for a long time until recently.
4: And just a a quick note that before Western psychiatry, discovered psychedelics, there's been centuries and, you know, even more use of various kinds of psychedelics, predominantly across the global South by indigenous groups. And, um, a lot of the indigenous groups that were using various psychedelic substances were really tamped out with, uh, colonization when, um, know especially in, South and Central America. Um, And I would really recommend Meg Jay's book on Masculine, a global history of the first psychedelic, which really traces a lot of that kind of the the pre-medical history of psychedelics and a lot of the medical research and psychological research owes a lot to the work that was done before by indigenous communities. So I just wanted to acknowledge that as well.
2: I was struck um by the fact that uh, there seems to be something slightly different about using, let's say, alcohol as a social lubricant, um, an anti-anxiety treatment. Well, anyway, the Preston's service is an anti-anxiety treatment. It's not a very good one overall, but, but there seems to be a difference between the use of alcohol and the use of psychedelics in the, as much as their psychedelics sort of Seems to bring along with it this notion of like changing one's view of reality, which seems to be different from alcohol. Maybe it changes your mood or changes your anxiety level or such, but not so much a change of a view in reality. I wonder how much that plays into the current interest in it, because uh, it is a little bit of a unique, uh, uh, it has a sort of a unique appeal for many people.
5: Hi, it's a pleasure to be here with you all. So I, I should also um, say before addressing your point about alcohol being somehow distinct from psychedelics, uh, so-called, that psychedelic as a term is is a relatively modern invention and still one that may not encompass exactly what we're attending to here. It was coined by a psychiatrist, uh, Humphrey Osmond, who, Um, was competing with Aldous Huxley for the most compelling name. And and they landed on this uh, grammatically incorrect um, uh, portmanteau to uh, encapsulate what they thought were the the cardinal effects of of this class of substances. And it's worth mentioning um, in deference to Neshe's point about um, indigenous traditions that many of them find it objectionable to refer to these compounds as as psychedelics. Um, That for for many of them, they're sacraments, teachers, medicines. And it raises questions about whether we're looking at a, a completely novel group of compounds um, or if there's something about them that's novel to Western tradition, um, at least in, in this kind of post industrial phase, alcohol, as well, um, as, as many of you know, may have so called psychedelic effects if, a, if approached in, in the right spirit. Um, you know, the, the Dionysian rites of ancient Greece involved. Ecstatic immersion in the mysteries and communion with with Godhead, with um, nothing more than Cabernet. So, um, you know, we should really think deeply about not only what these medicines, these compounds, are doing neurochemically, but what the cultural representation might be and and the the rituals surrounding them, how we're approaching them. Um, so yes, when we're treating anxiety with with some Merlot at night, that's very different from getting set up with a psychedelic psychiatrist and, and getting prepared and then going through the experience and then going through whatever integration might be. Um, but there are people who are using these substances regularly in a way that might be dampening their power in ways that require perhaps a a great deal more preparation and intentionality than than currently we're giving alcohol, at least most of us are giving alcohol.
1: Um, There's some background noise. I'd like to ask um, all of the panelists to be sure that they're on mute when they are not speaking. But thank you very much for that that very comprehensive summary of where we are now, for for those of you who've already spoken. And I think some of what Jerry talked about also has a generational flavor to it. So I'm hoping we could at some point get into that in terms of the different ways that the generations use some of these substances.
0: I could add one thing. Um, I find it very interesting uh, that at a moment where you could say our culture has very much valued autonomy and individualism Um, you find in so many uh, contexts that a need for connection is arising despite all of this. And whether one call it um, part of a greater context of ritual and community, um, or whether that connection is now being sought in these therapeutic uh, sessions um, to recover a sense of connection and community and to Uh, alleviate suffering to be able to enable connection or greater connection with other human beings. I think it's also part of a cultural moment um, where there's been a greater acceptance of certain forms of um, uh, uses of drugs on a larger scale um, when we're seeing the legalization of a variety of of other substances um, across the United States. So I think this is also playing into the importance of Uh, the
2: moment as well. We have this already, this sort of division between uh, its use, uh, or at least a partial division between its use historically in ritual and not specifically in the sort of latter-day notion of what therapy is or therapeutics is. and it's it's. I wonder if um, we could talk a few minutes about how this is these are being eva- the drugs are being e- evaluated in terms of therapeutics, and then go back and say whether is that all there is to them, or there other um, aspects to psychedelic use that doesn't specifically fit into the mold of our sense of the um, therapeutics in the modern times. Alex, maybe you'll say something about your research um, on, yeah. on depression.
6: Yeah, I, yeah, I can definitely, I think, speak somewhat to that. Although I would, I would say, I mean, we have clinician here as well who can answer that question quite well. Um, but I, I, I would, I would say that, yeah, the current research and in the research to psychedelics, I would say, is, is in large part due to the therapeutic potential, um, the fact that there has been some pilot, smaller scale clinical trial that. Uh, I would say restarted uh, coming out of the um, more strict scheduling in the last 15 years or so where it's shown some pretty strong efficacy in certain amounts of certain types of disorders like depression uh, as well as substance use disorder. Um, I think it's interesting to think how it may maybe, and we can talk about this, how it may be a yeah, departure from some of the uh, uh, view on these compounds um, in the past. I think with the resurgent, I think, at least in my sense, there is more of a try to follow a bit more strictly in terms of a medical use perspective to try to keep it uh, a bit more um, scientific or to use it in a more um, control manner, let's say, um, relative in the past. I think every, everybody is a bit more careful in that way. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a good topic to discuss uh, in terms of how it's currently being studied and being used as opposed to some of the um, past history and also some of these very intriguing effects of these, um, of these compounds.
5: Hi, uh, I'm sure Steve can also give his perspective on the clinical development of these compounds I entered into this field um, interested in um, really correcting a misconception that was very prevalent at the time that I started doing research with ketamine, which was that the psychoactive effects of ketamine are totally irrelevant to um, what it's doing. And that any effect that we're seeing therapeutically is entirely neurobiological, neuromodulatory. Um, it's fairly evident from anyone who knows the history that ketamine um, has been looked at as a as a so-called psychedelic, um, insofar as its psychoactive effects were were thought to be crucial for its efficacy. Um, but 15 years ago, that would have been really problematic to, to emphasize. Um, it was introduced as a biological intervention, something that's given much like ECT or, or transmagnetic stimulation with the, with the psychoactive effect, something to do away with, perhaps developing a new medicine that is um, completely innocuous psychoactively, um, something like an SSRI, doing exactly the same thing neurobiologically, but without the experiential psychological effects. But the research that I've done has looked at how we might uh, integrate ketamine um, at a psychoactive dose with uh, various types of psychotherapy and and mobilizing some of the experiential effects um, that occur to uh, initiate change, um, particularly with addiction. And That's, I think, where things are shifting in in the medical domain, Uh, looking at experiences that historically have been considered problematic, off limits, um, psychopathological, and investigating their utility and how they might be important to work with. Um, Now, all of this is to say that there's been a counter current at the same time of kind of persisting in regarding these, these compounds as entirely biological and investigating whether there are compounds we can develop that do away with psychoactive effects or that simulate what's happening neurobiologically. Um, and I think we have to really consider what um, might be lost in, in doing so, um, we stand to remain firmly in, in a paradigm that, that may not be doing us well, first of all. Um, and second, we may be losing sight of how we might um, expand what human experience is, or expand our understanding of what human experience is so that we could um, work more fully with even its more perilous, um, perilous edges
1: Um, Thank you for that. It's it's a little difficult to hear part of you. There's a great deal of background noise. Is it possible to to mute that background noise so we can really hear what you're saying, which is quite compelling? um...
5: Yeah, I should uh, apologize. I'm upstate currently and in mm-hmm. what's called a bomb cyclone, <laughs> um, and so I had to I had to run to um, another town that had Wi-Fi, and I'm I'm at a at a friend's restaurant currently. Um, oh, so, all right. So I, I apologize for the background noise. But, um, well, we yeah, what you're saying is so compelling.
1: Cyclone. We just want to hear it.
5: Thank yeah. you. I, I should. I, I'll, I'll finish here with. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that this is all happening within a very concerted kind of um, financial effort to um, move forward with developing new compounds for medical use, as well as to create new academic centers and keep the research machine going. So we, I think we have to keep those aspects of this in mind that, that this would not be happening if it didn't um, involve the vested interests of certain elites. Um, mm.
0: mm-hmm.
2: I just want to clarify one thing I think I wanted, to, I think I'd like to, um, um, Make clear what I think you were getting at, Elias, because I'm. I'm sh- I, some people in our audience may be confused by this. I think you meant uh, that uh, you were making distinction between the bio, quote-unquote biological effects and it's um, this sort of, I guess, what people would loosely would refer to with the psychedelic effects or the trippy effects of, the, of these drugs. Um, because you, of course, all the known antidepressants have psychoactive effects, and the, the question is whether these agents can provide positive therapeutic effects, the, those, those psychoactive effects without the ones where there's an experiential change, right? Which, and I think you're claiming that it, it might be you're going to be throwing the baby out with the bathwater if you don't acknowledge that these uh, mind altering or psychedelic type effects and the neuroplasticity that it seems to imply that without them, you may be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Is
5: that a fair? Well, injury? absolutely. And I think ontologically, to reduce what we are to um, brain changes is to also dis- do a disservice to kind of the range of, of experience um, you know, what constitutes us and to fall into a kind of facile materialism. Um, you know, invariably there's a very significant important dimension to what we experience. <laughs> I mean, it's it's ridiculous that I have to say that, but that I mean, that's 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 important to acknowledge. And and reducing what these medicines um, do to neural effects is congruent with this um, really problematic materialism. Um, so, and it's all the more. Potent with, with these substances because they blow up all of those categories. I mean, the experience that people describe um, is incredibly metaphysically challenging. I mean, we we you know we we are confronted with the limits of our knowledge, and um, I'm sure Patricia can 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 talk about you know that 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 you know the cloud of not knowing um that's you know so common in mystical literature and to be just thrust into that um you know is uh i think an integral part of what we're what we're seeing here with, with these medicines providing benefit i've shown that in in the research that you know the the experience um of ineffability mediates any benefits um mediates any benefits that ketamine is having. So it's, it's kind of a crucial component um, and that's not unique to ketamine. It's also seen with other, with other substances. Um, the, the so-called mystical type experience is, is, is an important part of whatever they're doing. Um, so yeah, I think that's particularly a potent issue because we're seeing here a kind of explosion of traditional conventional ontology and metaphysics um, accounting for the benefits that these these substances are providing. And then and then doing this post hoc shoehorning of these substances into really tired, obsolete metaphysical systems. I mean it just it seems to me um, really losing sight of the shift, the, the great shift in paradigm and ways of thinking and ways of being that, that these substances could occasion, not only individually but collectively.
0: Can I say something? Um, thank you so much, uh, Elias, for, for that contribution. The one, one of the things that struck me so much in all the material that I've been reading is the necessity, like you said, of a sense of the ineffable or restoring a sense of enigma to the world, or for example, um, allowing for the sense of potential and possibility to re-inhabit or re-inscribe, ex- be re-inscribed in experience. And I find that that the language of science is often describing that at the neurological level, but it's not producing <laughs> that experience. That has to be effective, emotive, um, part of a belief structure and experiential at its core. So I'm really interested in this uh, tension between the experiential and, um, and its limits too and and how this therapy allows for um, something quite radical to happen um, in that register. Hey,
6: I think
1: one of the- one of, okay. oh, go ahead. Oh I was going to
6: say maybe I will also respond a bit to Elias. I think that's a very interesting point and as a basic scientist studying the Actions of these drugs in animal model. I mean, that's something that I think about quite a lot. There's definitely a limit in terms of what we can study neurobiologically. These what these drugs would do. We study it at the level of receptors, at the level of cells, at the level of neurons. Um, there's obviously limits in terms of neuroscience on how we can right now explain or not being able to explain things like consciousness or some of these connection that um, we talked about. Um, but I do think that. Uh, uh, I, I think being go, going full way in terms of trying to understand the therapeutic effects entirely based on neurobiology I think is fraud. I would agree with you on that. Like, I think it's that, that would be ignoring the complete picture to f- base it fully on biology. Um, but I do think biology can still provide a lot of values in terms of what these drugs are doing. And there's so much missing right now, I feel like, in terms of a lot of the research is done in the 50s and the 60s and 70s where a lot of the techniques are quite old. Now we can have a very clear idea on, you know, the, the, we can have high resolution on what these receptors look like. Um, we can have a complete image of the human brain under the influence of these drugs. These, uh, I think, observation experiments give us tremendous insight on how our brain looks like uh, under the influence of psychedelics. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I'm a bit more optimistic in terms of what biology can tell us. I don't think it explained the full picture, but I think it's a necessary part of trying to explain this whole experience.
4: If I could jump in quickly as well, just to to riff on some points that Elias brought up. There's a a really interesting book um, that came out recently by James Davies called Sedated, How Modern Capitalism Created Our Mental Health Crisis. And in that book, uh, Davies lays out some really compelling evidence that the, uh, the medicalized, individualized approach to treating mental distress, um, where you kind of just assi- give people SSRIs and you tell them that it's based on a chemical imbalance in the brain, that that has actually fueled the, the rise of mental illness, because it's emphasizing this, you know, you take a pill, you focus, you don't, you don't think about the environmental contextual factors that are contributing to your, your distress. And instead you focus on just, you know, your own brain chemistry as an individual. And there's a lot of evidence in the way that the corporate approach to rolling out psychedelic medicalization is going, that there's an attempt to kind of capitalize on the failure of SSRIs while kind of taking that same shoehorned approach of treating suffering at the level of the individual um, and applying it to psychedelics. And it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's a a replacement of one metaphor for another. So instead of chemical imbalance, let's fix your your chemical signaling in your brain. Instead, it's metaphors of stuck energy and the need to increase neuroplasticity, but it's still distracting attention away from the larger systemic factors that are very important to, you know, the the extent of distress that's currently across the planet. And so I, I'm personally very interested in the potential of psychedelics to help bring awareness to the ways that our senses of identity, our sense of self has been conditioned by living in capitalist systems that are actually very harmful and and helping us to rewrite our our narratives, both about ourselves and our relationships to each other and kind of inspire things like solidarity and working towards systemic change. And I worry that some of the, the capitalist momentum behind the ways that psychedelics are being rolled out. And I'm speaking as someone who's been working in the field for over a decade. So I you know, I was there before the money. I've kind of been seeing the transformation that's been happening with the field and the incentives that happen when money is given to develop certain kinds of visions of what psychedelic medicines are. Um, I think that there's a risk that those larger systemic treatments, that kind of psychedelics for systemic change, are being underemphasized at the expense of this individualized model that's just treating an individual and trying to uh, kind of create, uh, get, get income from that rather than addressing the root causes of social necessary, social change.
5: Actually, that was a, that was a really great point. Um, I'm reminded of a conversation I had recently with someone who is very entranced by the psychedelic zeitgeist and was speculating about, um, how much good might come from opening up ketamine clinics to the homeless and providing support to to the homeless by you know giving access to ketamine infusions completely alighting and glancing over the the sorts of issues that Neshe is bringing up about you know, the the systemic problems of lack of a place to live lack of health care lack of food I mean if we really want to help the homeless we're not going to stuff them with ketamine we're going to give them a place. That that keeps them warm and that that takes care of them and give them opportunity, and and there is this 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 kind of hype machine that's going on right now. I think in in tandem with the the rapid corporatized rollout, um, oh, yes. or at least the fantasy of a rollout of these of these compounds, to to kind of, um, proclaim benefits that far exceed what what is really possible here. Um, you know, we're not going to s- solve our world's problems by giving everyone uh, an experience of interconnectedness you know that that or, or you know communion with um, the cosmos that you know, there real work needs to be done um, so yeah i you know i'm i share um Neche's concern about the the challenges here with um, um remaining caught up in a system that is more about selling products to people who can buy them rather than rather than helping the world serving others
2: um i may i I like to push back a little bit on this uh this discourse and aneshi's point about the chemical imbalance theory of antidepressant treatment i think it I know there are instances where physicians or nurse practitioners or whoever it may be who, who are prescribing these medicines may treat the person like a, a, in, in a little black box and give them medicines and just say it's a chemical imbalance. I'd say it's really a terrible caricature of what real clinicians do in real time, that that's all they do with their patients. They don't not, they're not concerned with the patient's experience. It's, I think it's actually uh, reckless to suggest that because it's just not true typically. There are plenty of instances of that. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying it's wrong to render the typical treatment uh, between a doctor or or mental health clinician and uh, the medicines they're using to prescribe that they're just, you know, treating them as a chemical, a bag of uh, chemicals. I don't think that's true. Also, Elias brings up an important point here and it's also picks up on something you said, Nashe, which I, I, I do agree with, but then I think, well, we're talking about psychedelics as a, group of, I guess, well, psychedelics and psychedelic experience. But if we're going to talk about them as potential treatments, we have to talk about them as treatments. And what do they do? And you're right, uh, Elias, to say, well, that doesn't solve the world's problems to give one medication to one individual person. Um, I think the humanities are are, a great place for us to enlighten people with or without the use of psychedelics. So um, the job isn't only on the uh, pharmaceutical companies to solve all these problems, but it's, it's what they do. And again, last point, and I'll, I'll shut up. No, of course, there are some terrible um, uh, incentives in place for pharma to develop drugs in ways that are not in everyone's best interest. That I agree with also as well. But in general, we are talking about the class of medicines and uh, what it can do.
4: So... So, just if I could really quickly respond to part of that. So, part of my issue with the way that many of the big, you know, kind of millionaire, billionaire funded psychedelic corporations are rolling out is that they're using aspects of the experience, like you feel more connected to nature, you feel empathy for people who are different from you, as a justification for rapid scaling and monopolization of access to psychedelics. And what's happening there is you're kind of dangling this you know, partial truth about what can happen under psychedelics, but using it to justify promoting a system where wealth is funneled to the top. There's, you know, gross inequality in society. And it's actually that kind of phenomenon that the literature suggests is actually fueling things like, um, the climate change issues and political polarization, so if you're saying one thing, you know, and kind of using the uh, phenomenology of psychedelic experience, but you're systemically in these cases of these corporations contributing to the underlying systemic issues that are actually fueling those issues. So it's to me that that's part of part of the issue. And just regarding the SSRIs, there was a recent study kind of comparing uh, led by Rosalind Watts and Robin Hart Harris, comparing SSRIs as, as a telegram to Psilocybin, and they came out. Both people in the psilocybin group and the psilocybin group came out feeling it, 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 it kind of comparably, roughly improved. And Rosin Watts, in reflecting on that, was suggesting that it speaks to the quality of the care that was being provided. So while you know a lot of, especially in in the UK where um, James Davies was writing about, where the the, um, the National Health Service, it's cheaper to give people a pill than it is to give Meaningful, sustained psychotherapy and, and, and talk therapy. And so it's a run to that problem where it's like the cheaper option is rolled out when really people need relationship. They need kind of interpersonal care. And that tends to be underemphasized when the um, biomechanistic approach to treating mental illness is overemphasized.
1: Um, I, I think it would be extremely helpful to me personally and perhaps to others in our audience if we could hear more about what the difference is in the various substances are and how important that might need to be. I'm sure you know that there are now these, especially in people in their twenties, these so-called psychedelic parties where six o'clock is ketamine, seven o'clock is cocaine, eight. O'clock is sil- psilocybin, you know. Nine o'clock is some other kind of mushroom, and and we don't know what what is being sought in that kind of going into altered states. And I think it would be enormously helpful to have more understanding about what what the effect of each of the drugs is. Can, uh, Beverly, can
0: I ask one thing though? One of the things that seems to be so important in relation to the actual therapeutic effect is language, Um, as Nisha was kind of describing, that the communicative therapeutic process has to be also integrated into language, that the experience as entertainment is, I think, from my, my understanding, is a completely different thing, and that this is distinct from the entertainment value of that experience in that it is so essentially dependent upon the language the the integrative communicative aspect of it and the ways in which it becomes part of a larger therapeutic context so i wonder if i could ask the people here who are more experienced obviously in that and and talk a little bit about the role of language this is also where the humanities comes into play as well in terms of the role of narrative, the way we narrate our experiences and the way in which that kind of narrative potential becomes altered and and what narrative has to do with experience in general.
1: Yes, and I, I think that's connected to the whole motif of whether or not one can say, and some of you have addressed this, that an altered brain state is the same thing as a spiritual experience. And uh, I wonder if Dr. Ross could um, enter in here and tell us sort of from the background of all of his research, how how we can place between the spiritual, the biological, uh, the altered state, where, where do psychedelics fit in and which fit in where? Is there any distinction that we need to know about? You there Elias do you have thoughts about that or Alex
5: yeah I'll let I'll let Steve um, answer the question after that so the mm-hmm. question was about um, first of all parsing between the different substances and then also parsing between the different effects that they might occasion mm-hmm. biological to no, not just but effects
1: but but like the, the metaphysic domain that we're talking my, about.
5: Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think uh, as, as uh, was said earlier, language is important, and it's first of all important to emphasize that psychedelic, as a as a category, subsumes a variety of different agents acting in a in diverse neurobiological ways, encompassing. Um, Agents that work on the serotonin system, the 5-HT2A agonist, so-called, the classical psychedelics. Um, there are also serotonin releasers um, like MDMA. Um, cannabis is historically considered a psychedelic. Um, Iboga, um, which causes, which the, the active metabolite, which is Ibogaine, is, is a very, mysterious psychedelic it's, it's still not clear what it does so there there's a variety of different immediate neurobiological effects of these substances the shared final common pathway neurobiologically appears to be um, a, uh, a modulation of global brain activity um, where the usual you um, know i don't want to get too far afield with with neurobiological explanations, but the, the usual organizing schemes that um, the the brain falls into um, electrically, uh, they become modulated, and um, connections that ordinarily are very um, tight between different regions become weaker and Areas that ordinarily aren't in communication begin communicating more and and that may lead to more protracted um, effects on the neuroplasticity of the brain insofar as there's opportunity for new neural connections to form and states that are comparable to, um, this has been seen in rodents, when the animal is best capable of learning new things, um, to, to put it very simply. So there, there's, there's, there's a clear neurobiological correlate to all that's happening. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, to return to language, there are also these very um, difficult to understand and articulate um, experiences that occur that, that require a kind of um, a responsive framework to help the person articulate, make sense of them and move forward with them. In the past, in indigenous traditions, for example, that framework was cultural, communal. Right now it's, um, uh, let's call it psychedelic um, in the in the new wave of research that's been happening, where there's a, a um, kind of syncretic, quasi new age, mindfulness-based, um, uh, 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 recognition of a certain mystery that these these experiences occasion and providing various um, opportunities for the person to mobilize those experiences in a manner that might have therapeutic impact. And, and that process begins from the very beginning and, and how the process is talked about, how the person is prepared for the experience, um, there's a certain style of providing the medicine or the compound to um, allow for the experience to unfold in a relatively uh, benign way. Again, I'm sorry about the background noise. Um, and, and then afterwards, there's again this, this, this integration process, as it's called, to help the person um, Move forward with whatever new insights, perspectives might have been might have been gained. You know, that is a very different process than than the this, the parties that you mentioned, which I don't think are, are recent. I imagine they've been going on since at least the 1920s. But um, you know, so that this this um, recreational use that doesn't involve the the same um, intentions, motivations. And, same, of course, context in a clinic, um, as in the case of, of recent research, and that leads to very different engagement with whatever is produced. Um, it, it's less about insight, or or um, or uh, it may be about insight, but it's it's less about therapy and 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 more about a, a kind of personal engagement, whatever that might look like, recreational, sexual. Psychosexual, magical. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I'm, yeah, I, I, I think context is important, and you know, I don't, I don't need to bring out the, the set and setting thing. I'm sure everyone's heard it a thousand times, but you know, that's that's a, it's an important um, aspect of of work with not only these medicines but any kind of, you know, surgery. For example, isn't something we do in a kitchen on Saturday night, you know. Um, it it requires a great deal of, of preparation, context, uh, guidance. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Um, I didn't get to the whole, you know, uh, you know, what's the what's the connection between the mind and the brain? Because I, I don't think we can get mm-hmm. that over the course of this mm-hmm. hour. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
2: Well, I thought we might pick up a little bit more on this topic of, I think the you know uh, neuroplasticity, whatever, uh, however much a double-edged sword it might be in terms of the distribution of these treatments, uh, it does seem to be where there's an interface uh, between the biology of uh, this research and the therapeutics and also narrative and language. Uh, it, is, uh, um, it is felt by those who endorse this sort of treatment; that we are in, in, if, at least taking some sort of shortcut towards neuroplasticity and opening of the brain up when it may otherwise be in sort of a stuck position in one way or another, and for whatever reason, and there are multiple those those reasons. There were there are there is some indication that we are opening up these pathways in the brain. Um, um, I'm sure some of the others can speak to this, and that allows for the narrative to take a different path. And that narrative may include my what my life is like, what sort of person I am, et cetera, how I relate to others. Um, maybe some of the others might wanna speak more to maybe explaining this uh, information about the neuroplasticity in the brain cells.
7: Steve, what do you think about this?
3: I think Alex is the best person here to explain neuroplasticity.
7: <laughs> but about the other question that Beverly asked in terms of clinical issues. Which part of the question? Beverly, you want to repeat your question to Steve?
1: Um, I, I don't know if I could repeat it exactly, but I was wondering about the different effects on the brain. And then we have to also think about on the mind. Of the different sorts of substances that we're talking about. Uh, and see, yeah. I'd like to add into the question of context the, the whole idea of the trust and the transference into the person who is administering this. But that'll take us off into another piece. But we, we are not knowledgeable about the distinctions and what does what.
3: Yeah, I, I think Elias did a good job of answering that question. It's a very, very broad question.
1: Well, what would, could you add from your own very particular experience and long experience, how we should best approach this?
3: Well, what, what I could add is, um, you know, the, my experience working with patients. So I, I've done work um, with psilocybin, patients that have advanced cancer and that, that work has been very moving and I think is one of the areas that uh, is the most promising. Um, and we're going to be doing more work in that area. Out of that um, body of research, we started looking at major depressive disorder. And there are a lot of different programs now looking at major depression. And there's sort of converging signals that it may work for that disorder, which is very important. It's uh, one of the most disabling neuropsychiatric t- conditions in the world. Uh, In addition to that, um, addiction is a very promising area here. And uh, we just finished up a a trial using psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy to help people that have alcohol use disorder. And uh, that's um, kind of picking up from the promising work of LSD and alcohol use disorder. And there are several other programs of research looking at other substances of abuse. Matt Johnson at Hopkins is studying psilocybin Uh, assisted psychotherapy to help people with tobacco use disorder and nicotine use disorder. Peter Hendricks at Alabama is studying psilocybin to treat cocaine addiction. Uh, There are other groups looking at opiate addiction. Um, So I I think the most mature programs of research are with psilocybin in advanced cancer, and not just advanced cancer, other life-threatening medical conditions where there's existential distress. We were one of the groups along with Johns Hopkins to find that psilocybin reduced demoralization in advanced cancer. Uh, And that's the area that I've become probably the most interested at this point. And we have a a group of new studies looking at psilocybin and LSD in patients that have advanced or terminal cancer and also looking to do work in early stage cancer like breast cancer, that the rates of distress um, can be as high in early stage cancer than it can be in end of life and important to intervene early. Um, Mm. So I think, you know, these are all promising signals around efficacy, but these are all been small pilot studies and we need to do bigger studies to see, you know, if there's true efficacy, we need to continue to do the work so that we can optimize safety. Very important um, that we have good safety outcomes. Um, So I, I think those are the most promising areas, but there's so many different directions to go that it's a really exciting time to be in the field.
1: Thank you, very helpful. Others thoughts?
7: I just uh, was going to ask Steve, in terms of uh, cancer patients, what is it your, especially advanced cancer patients, what is it you are trying to achieve and what is it you observe when, uh, you are giving them the uh, psilocybin or whatever you, uh, uh, LSD that you give them. But in other words, what, what is the goal and how do you see the benefits? Yeah.
3: Well, patients that, let's, let's take advanced cancer. Advanced cancer has very high rates of anxiety and depression. About a third of people will have some form of anxiety or depressive spectrum disorder and then if you look at existential distress like death anxiety, demoralization syndrome, uh, upwards of 50% with um, end-of-life cancer and other medical illnesses will have that distress. And having anxiety, depression, and existential distress in cancer is associated with both poor medical outcomes like decreased survival and poor psychiatric outcomes like increased suicidality and What we found in a pilot study that we published in 2016, that single-dose psilocybin in conjunction with a manualized psychotherapy that was existentially oriented, produced rapid reductions in anxiety and depression uh, that we found lasted many months. We even did a long-term follow-up, suggest the effects may have uh, gone out as long as four and a half years. But uniquely, we found reduction in existential distress. We found patients, uh, and these were patients where they had um, kind of like advanced cancer. They got stuck. They felt that life no longer had any meaning. They no longer felt connected to sources of, of love or spirituality. And they kind of have this hastened desire to want to be dead. And what we found is that psilocybin pretty rapidly um, changed their outlook, created a very meaningful experience an experience of unitary consciousness, experience of being in touch with infinite love, um, strange experiences they were often very challenging, very difficult, rated among the most significant and personally meaningful experiences of their entire lives. And that they, they said that that opened a kind of door for them and allowed them to think about their relationship to cancer and death differently. And um, the last parts of, of many of their patients' lives were filled with meaning, love, connection. They were able to die these good deaths. So that, that work was very, very moving uh, and very, like surprising. And so the idea is to replicate that. To, to, we're going to be doing a much larger study in 200 participants looking at single-dose psilocybin in conjunction with psychotherapy to treat stage 3-4 cancer patients that have anxiety, depression, and demoralization syndrome. Uh, and we have a, a new pilot study going back to the work of, L, of Eric Cast using LSD to treat cancer pain. I designed a study, a control trial using LSD-assisted psychotherapy to treat pain in patients that have advanced cancer as well as anxiety depression and demoralization Um, so so many areas to go with with the end of life existential stuff and that's the an area that i think is really worth exploring further
2: i find it really interesting that many of these conditions well end of life is really seems to be well, no, I, let, me, let me correct that. I'll get my point out. I, I Going back to this notion of neuroplasticity and, and narratives being stuck, I said in the most general way, a lot of these conditions that we're seeking to help and overcome suffering involve some sort of stuck state. Um, some people who are interested in networks, network theory talk about attractor states, uh, addiction where someone returns re- over and over again to a drug, even when oftentimes it causes discomfort or pain at the advanced stages of the addiction, people with OCD who keep repeating certain things, and of course, the death when you're facing death. This is why I corrected my first opening comment. Um, it's difficult not to be stuck in a particular groove because each of us approach each of us approaches death with a set of fantasies and ideas of what it might entail, and I dare say many of us would start to pretty quickly converge just towards something that may not be wonderful for us to experience or easy for us to experience. Um, So the idea that the neuroplasticity opens up the brain, there's this research showing that it affects the default mode network, maybe others could also talk about a little bit, and BDNF levels that get changed with uh, psychedelic treatment, and that this opens up the possibility for moving that, you can call it, there's different parallel ways of describing this, the narrative, the attractor state, you know, the way the brain is able to be plastic, those three different ways of describing the same process that might bring relief in some cases um, and, and allow for a new narrative. Um, I wonder, Alice, does that make sense to you from where from where you
7: sit?
6: Yeah, so my lab yeah, has done some research on, on how some of these drugs or psychedelics could uh, influence neuroplasticity. So we studied this in the animals and um, I think Steve was referring to one of our recent studies where we, we can track the, uh, the different neuronal connections within the animal's brain. And what was striking about psychedelic and particularly we studied psilocybin was that when you give one dose uh, of this compound to the mouse, uh, we do see a growth of some new neural connection within the brain that appear really fast within a day. And then uh, quite different from other drugs that we've observed, it lasts for also a long time. Uh, so previously, my lab has also studied ketamine, and we can see increases in also you know, the number of neuron connections that lasts for about a week or so. But now with psilocybin, we can go back in about a month and you can still see some of those connections being present. So it does seem like the, these compounds, psychedelics, at least with psilocybin that we've studied, have uh, quite a remarkable ability to enhance the plasticity potential of the brain. And that's quite unusual because usually in adults, uh, our brain is quite fixed. You know, you might not want to change your, the wiring of your brain. You've learned certain skills. You've learned how to speak a language. You don't want to disrupt those things. Um, and then if you ask, you know, when do then you usually see we form new neural connection even as adult is when we try to learn something, Yeah, when we try to be flexible. Um, so in fact, I, I, you, you brought up a point before and I was trying to respond to it, but I, I agree completely with you. I don't think th- this biological narrative of how things work in terms of neuroplasticity and some of the um, acute subjective experiences necessarily in conflict. In fact, I think they can be compatible in the sense that the plasticity allows one to learn to, be, to facilitate uh, the integration of new experiences. And then I'm not arguing that animal could have similar kind of experiences. Most definitely it might not have some similar kinds of mystical experiences and of person as humans do, but uh, the plasticity process might be quite similar. And then on human, on top of that, you could add those mystical-like experiences that then integrate onto the system. Um, but just go back to a little bit more to my work. As scientists, uh, we uh, have an opportunity to study plasticity in animals. And what we can study is you know, how these plasticity arise, like what are some of the molecules involved maybe that allow us to control uh, how to enhance the plasticity, when those of it occur, when does it occur, um, so we can better harness it, I think. Um, You know, if if psilocybin can do this, can we uh, open the window of plasticity with some other way, with some other drugs? uh, Or can we somehow prolong it? Or can we uh, make it better? Can we target it a certain brain area? I think all of those could have uh, a lot of uh, usage in terms of um, improving some of these treatment options.
1: Are there any studies of the background, personality, or existential experience of those who are able to make meaning and those who are not in this process? Or is that outside the realm of the research? What what the person brings to to it in the first place?
3: Uh, People are, are starting to kind of wonder about that. We don't yet have the data to see what sort of predisposing personality factors might predict response. But very interestingly, research has been done showing that uh, single or two doses of psilocybin and LSD can lead to enduring changes in trait openness when you give the NEO personality mm-hmm. scale. And so being, in, you know, being more open to new ideas and experiences is you know, one of the core things we try to do in psychotherapy and a change in general. So it's uh, we think of personality as pretty fixed by our early 20s, but this research that first started at Johns Hopkins kind of implied that you could get even from, you know, few doses, long-term personality changes, which is very interesting to, to consider uh, what how that may be leveraged therapeutically or in general.
1: And that's more pertains to the psilocybin itself versus it, let's say ketamine.
3: It was found with psilocybin and LSD, Alice, I'm not, I'm not aware of Is there any data on um, ketamine and, and personality changes?
7: There isn't, no. Um, Are those personality changes always positive?
5: That's a, that's a very interesting point. Yeah, very interesting point. I, I, just to follow up on what Steve said, um, unfortunately that, that finding has not been replicated yet. A recent study failed to find enduring openness after psilocybin. So, I, I mean, this this is an example, I think, of one finding, kind of fitting into the zeitgeist of you know, what these medicines are thought to do and then people running with it. Um, and again, you know, the neuroplasticity openness thing that we're hearing is also um, part of that. Though, though it is a very compelling um, story and Ger Dolan, Johns Hopkins have shown that you know, the so-called critical period after these substances can Know, vary in length, um, depend, which correlates pretty well with what we're finding in, in humans as far as the endurance of benefits with ketamine having a fairly short critical period after a after, um, single dose to the rats um, followed by MDMA, by psilocybin, and by ibogaine, which had a which had a very long critical period. So, um, you know, the the neurobiology of these compounds can definitely shed some light on on what's happening. But but I think we have we return again to that question of, okay, that then what? <laughs> so yeah, um, like what what do we what do we do with that? And yeah, um, might we be uh, kind of Disproportionately focusing on things that are interesting but not quite relevant um, to how how to really engage with these compounds in in a in clinical and and communal ways. Um,
2: I um I wanted to uh, make a point that I um I, in response actually to Beverly's question because I think uh, many people who may be listening in the audience. May get the false notion. I know this does happen among patients that I see, that the research is much more um, wide ranging and extensive than it really is. I mean, one of the reasons I think th- those were excellent questions you asked, Beverly. But one of the problems is there aren't yet enough studies to be able to tease out all of these things. And as Elias just said, there are many instances where we don't know exactly yet what we should be looking for, even in some instances like what is the what are the parameters most related to, to what? Not being depressed, the being more open, or there's just a, almost an infinite range of possibilities. We, need, we just need to have more studies to be able to finally get to all of this. I think I wanna go back to this narrative notion again, which I'm stuck on because I think it, it raises a second problem that is how long lasting will this be? Now, there've been some studies suggesting that the results last out to six months. This is something I've run into with patients I have with ketamine, namely, What do you do exactly if it doesn't last? Like, what's the next step and what's the protocol to follow? As a comparison to ECT, it took decades with ECT, not only to refine the treatment so it wasn't so terrible to go through. It's still not a picnic, but it's gotten improved. But it's taken a long time to be able to establish, well, what sort of protocol might one follow in cases of relapse or recurrence, et cetera, et cetera. That's taken decades to work that out. We're at the very beginning of where there aren't even hardly any patients who've taken this in a therapeutic setting so far. So we have that issue. What as a practicing psychiatrist, what I worry about in patients who just, let's say, approach me with a problem with depression is that I might get them feeling better between talking to them, which I always do, and giving them a medicine. I might get them to be better in the near term. But I think a lot of practicing psychiatrists feel that the patients, I'll call it their narrative has a kind of inertia to it and then some of those people move back into trouble because of that inertia now the question is is that based on their personality traits because that's one certain parameter is it the social setting they're living in is our social determinants playing a role in this wow. and if we go back to what Neshe and patricia were saying earlier in many instances you have to go back and look at the, actually the systemic the level of the of the system if that's not corrected for certain people, how would you expect them to have long-lasting benefits? No matter what we've done with their neuro- neuroplasticity, I think it's an important problem. And is there's individual? It's like the biopsychosocial model. There's the individual's brain. There's their social life, their family life, their their, their network with friends, and then the wider social setting.
5: Uh, Joe, that, that's a really good question. Um, I have to say, I. I I flinch a little bit whenever I hear about people changing their stories. It's just, it's another like psychedelic platitude that's kind of emerging. Um, and while it's true, you know, that stories can become fossilized, this notion that suddenly we're you know, going through an experience and we have an opportunity to live in a new story. Um, you know, I, I think like a lot of the missteps of this so-called psychedelic Renaissance, um, Michael Pollan gave yeah. a lot of voice to um, to these things, I think that's the first time I saw in, in kind of a mainstream way this notion that our stories are being rewritten by these these substances. Um, but as anyone who who's a you know, practicing therapist knows, um, that's that idea of a, a story is 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 a metaphor, a kind of useful metaphor. But our patients aren't like living in their stories. You know that that's um, that's um, one way of well, I, well, like I wanted to uh, interface with the, the term
2: narrative, which I do subscribe. I get your what you're saying is exactly right. That uh, and certainly any simplistic notion. I'm going to give you a new story. Listen, to, I'll tell you what you, your story should be. That's ridiculous, and it's probably harmful, even right. But yeah. I'm saying, let think about in a broader sense of narrative, not so much what a person tells themselves into a story, how they how they fit into their lives. Well, or I'm thinking, else. Yeah,
5: I, I, I say all of this because it, it can inform the clinical engagement we have with our patients. If, if our mindset is, you know, we're helping them move towards a, a certain story, right? Um, even even as we may have a very expansive notion of what that means, um, there are certain metaphysical commitments that come with that. And also commitments that may not recognize the, the the real gist of what's happened. I, I brought up ineffability earlier, right? The approach that I've taken um, in the research I've done with ketamine is not the traditionally psychedelic one. Um, so the psychedelic um, heuristic is there's an experience, we prepare for it. The experience is, is kind of a, a very powerful moment that can then lead to change and 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 that's a very compelling story. Um, But another way of of approaching it is is, um, to see that moment as like any other, and um, to not perhaps invest it with the kind of weight, the psychedelic weight that the psychedelic framework does, and instead to allow it um, a kind of catalytic force whereby a certain momentum that is being generated within the therapy can then continue accelerating through that experience. Um, so we have narrative building versus a, a kind of more fluid process oriented um, approach. And the, the approach I've taken with ketamine is, is to look at it from a mindfulness based lens to, you know, mindfulness is the, from the Buddhist tradition, about uh, capacity for uh, acceptance, for moment-to-moment attention, for non-reactivity, uh, and also for um, uh, uh, a sense of the mystery, um, that there, there's very uh, little we can know absolutely about our condition. There's a, there's a, a certain um, uh, suspension of the kinds of stories, let's say, that can organize our experience. And approaching the the experience um, where the medicine is administered through that framework can help deepen this capacity so that it's not so much about a certain perspective that is then attained as it is about a a process that can be very enduring, being cultivated and then practiced and then reinstantiated um, through engagement with the the therapist. so more of a, a practice-oriented mindfulness-based approach. Um, so that's you know that's yet another way to do it. I'm not saying that any has um, you know validity over the others, but you know if we're if we're thinking about um, a certain fossilized perspective on things, accounting for so much of our suffering, perhaps what we need aren't new perspectives, but a but a vantage point beyond. Um, um, perspective altogether, right? where you can kind of be more, be more fluid and, and practice that capacity.
2: Well, let me, let me just add this and maybe we can get back to this, um, idea about, let me re- try to redefine what I meant by narrative Ken, because I think it's totally corresponds with what you just said, Elias. <laughs> Which is not narrative as text, as let's say Derrida might cite text as sort of a living thing and it's growing and it's sort of something that isn't fixed and that's open to the sorts of changes I think you just described. That's how I intended the word. Um, so I think I think we're on. I think we're and
5: uh, agreement there just just words right yeah no
2: well but they could be important but i think that's that's all i meant and i and i know and i because i think from a practical point of view for me again i i find that well whatever it is that thing and i'll it's, i'm happy to call it a mystery whatever it is that causes some folks to sort of drift back into a state of woe or anxiety i want to help them not do that right so what is it and I, and the medicines only go so far in some instances in many instances, unfortunately, right? We know that. So what are those other things? And I'm open to the, the, to the fact that there, is, there are these other very um, open-ended uh, and developmental issues. I mean, even developmental as an adult that need to be addressed for people to feel better in a lasting way or fulfilled in a lasting way. Um, and that's why I think also the whole notion that there may be social determinants and other things that play a really important role in sustaining someone's uh, sense of well-being.
1: I think one one often sees that the narrative changes when in fact the person's narrative has been more what they've been told by family, by society, who they are and what they are. And perhaps some of, of the experience they have in going, even if it's only into their bodies through these these different uses, therapy, or the work that you are all doing is because there's something that happens where they get more into themselves and then their own story begins to come out. And I'd be interested to hear what Patricia and Nashay have to say about that with with their different forms of research, which also bring in imagination, which is so crucial to the idea of change. Maybe it's access to imagination that happens. So, Patricia Nache. Nashay, Nashay.
0: Sure, I can I can say something. Um, so, uh, two things about the question or the the word narrative. I was intrigued in my readings about uh, treatment and the role of narrative, especially in relation to people with PTSD and the ways in which the inability or the, the, the effect of trauma that encapsulated narrative in a certain way or gave it a certain kind of cathexis and avoidance or whatever certain relation to language, that somehow the experiences allowed for a distance, an ability to read oneself that enabled narrative there where it had not been. So that narrative wasn't necessarily a fixed trajectory or a story or a telos, but rather was able to create a new experience. And this is where for me, I find the comparison with some of these therapeutics be really interesting with, for example, poetry and the ways in which, um, for example, you can think of literature as providing experience that you don't have and enabling a kind of experience of the impossible. And so I think that, for example, poetry also allows for certain kinds of simultaneous registers of meaning um, and that that opens up uh, a kind of otherwise determined field and lets it play, so to speak. So I found that important. And with regard to the, the question of imagination, it was interesting. I was reading François Roustan's uh, book on uh, what is hypnosis, which I find parallels some of the discussions about psychedelic therapy. And uh, he... Um, wrote that on the relation of imagination to transformation, for him, and I think this speaks to, to psychedelic therapy, he said, the imagi- it wasn't simply an indulgence in imaginative play, i.e. the status of uh, um, the hypnotic mm-hmm. state. It wasn't the, an acceleration of the imagination that engendered hypnosis. Um, And I think he says, he talks about it in terms of a paradoxical wakefulness that allows the imagination to unfurl and transform our relations with beings and with things. So the imagination stands in as an innate power to give order to the world or, you know, to give a a different kind of sense of interaction with it. So I found that that idea of this paradoxical wakefulness was really um, uh, an interesting one to think about in relation to um, the use of psychedelics. And I, I, would, I would just appreciate thinking kind of in my own future research about the kinds of interconnectedness between um, different kinds of forms of practice, aesthetic experience, for example, and ways in which that might also um, parallel uh, enabling other forms of, of generative meaning, put it that way.
4: And I I also have some, some thoughts on narrative and just speaking from my personal experience, I became interested in going into the field over 10 years ago when I was in, in college and I grew up neurodivergent and feeling very kind of incapable of interacting socially with people and have panic attacks all the time and just didn't know what was wrong with me, but felt like there was something wrong with me. And then I was introduced to psychedelics. And for the first time, I was able to, I didn't even realize I had all of these expectations of myself based on a kind of neurotypical society about how I should be and how I should interact with others. But it was this liberation from these expectations and impositions is how I experienced it. And so I went from, you know, having panic attacks, not being able to speak to, you know, people very easily to, Then when I went on to work in the field, giving lectures in front of hundreds of people, which speaks to sort of how profound the effect had been in my case. So in that case, it was these kind of unconscious stories that I was holding on to based on what I was exposed to that I was able to let go of and then feel my way into my own kind of form of being and let go of the the anxiety. The other point um, I wanted to mention was I've been working on qualitative so in addition to my literature work, which is my PhD is in literature, I've been working on some qualitative studies with uh, psychedelics. So the first one was um, uh, with Dr. Ross's, um, uh, the NYU study with uh, cancer anxiety with psilocybin. And then more recently, I'm currently wrapping up a, um, a qualitative study looking at um, smoking cessation with psilocybin at Johns Hopkins University. And, um, what's really interesting with smoking cessation is that the literature they've found, it's very hard to prevent people from relapsing. And one of the only things that has kind of consistently shown, um, promise and preventing protecting against relapse is for people who don't identify as a smoker, that there's something about the identification with smoking that is linked to returning to those, those habits. And so part of the smoking cessation literature generally and the psychedelic assisted smoking cessation studies is kind of working to see if it can shift people away from identifying with the smoker in order to affect long-term behavior. And one of the interesting things about this that speaks to how the field should be developing in the future is that a lot of what goes into that includes things that are in the treatment manuals but that are not published or explicitly studied by scholars just based on how uh, the, the publication conventions of the sciences, for example, but because there are things that are being done in, in the treatment rooms, in addition to the dosing, such as guided imagery, auto suggestion, hypnotic scripts that are being sort of in, in, in put in addition to the substances, it's gonna be important to look at the full package of what's going on, how can we best get, what's, that, what's actually being done therapeutically and being able to study the full set and setting package that's leading to positive treatment outcomes rather than focusing narrowly on the substance itself.
5: May I say something about imagination? Um, you know, in, in medicine, uh, imagination is, or sort of the bane of traditional clinical trialists because that's what accounts for the placebo response and we want to figure out ways to investigate the the really important mechanisms of a a compound, the biological mechanisms, while doing away with any of the other factors that play into imagination, suggestion, expectancy, anticipation, um, the narrative that's constructed around the experience, I'm coming to get this medicine and it's changing my brain chemistry and therefore i get better, doing away with all of those things. When it comes to investigating these compounds because of how integral those processes are to the emergence of their benefits, it can be um, difficult if not impossible to really test them adequately in the traditional manner. Where we're trying to do away with the placebo effect, what we might be seeing, and and I'm sure Steve can speak to this as well, is a heightened placebo response. We might be um, really playing with um, leveraging the, these innate capacities for imagining one's way to health, um, and um, you know, creating a, a you know, an intensification or a or a or a true experience uh, of that narrative um, within the, the administration context um, that consolidates those processes, um, brings them into greater play. So that, that, you know, when you mentioned imagination, that that's also a very important and, and clinically relevant, academically relevant aspect of this work. What yes, you
1: think, and and last. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Steve.
3: Oh, um, yeah. It, it's it's possible that there are kind of super placebo effects going on. There, there is a lot of suggestion that goes in. Um, the right before the session, we have people hold hands with their therapist, state their intention for the day they lie down, we give them eye shades, we have them focus internally, we give them pre-selected music that's very evocative. Um, Yeah, so there is a whole package and there's a lot of extra stuff going on. I mean, that's why I think it's important to have a control group and as much as you can, um, it's very hard to um, have a drug that can obscure some of the effects of the psychedelic without having therapeutic effects uh, itself.
1: Well, last year, we had a roundtable on placebo and the placebo effect, and Catherine Walker um, presented her her work on it, among others, suggesting or actually stating that there is in, in the mind a placebo receptivity that's ready to go into action with certain kinds of suggestion so out of that roundtable, we really had a sense of the reality of the placebo effect not being. Me, if this is really a stupid question, but I'm thinking about Ian McGilchrist book, the master and the emissary and his emissary where he talks about left brain process and right brain process. Do you find that the, in any way, could you suggest, if you think of those as relevant categories, that these psychedelic experiences activate more right brain, or is that irrelevant? Well,
5: that's an interesting question. I, you know, I, I've worked with people who have also been casualties of psychedelics, um, and who. Aren't simply um, entering into ineffable, non-narrative states for therapeutic benefit, but who develop these hyper-connected, totalizing visions of the world um, that are basically psychotic, um, and you know the direction that they take the brain. Um, again, if we're gonna be using that kind of neural vocabulary is, um, is variable. Um, and so I, I think we have to be very careful about um, falling prey to mythology about what, what these substances are doing and mythology about what the brain is. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think the right left hemisphere, hemispheric thing is also yeah. something to be, to be careful about. Um,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
5: I think the most compelling neural story I've heard is is the you kind know, of this predictive coding story, um, you know, where you know the, the brain is constantly generating um, a map, a paradigm by which to understand, interpret what's going on, um, and it's it's intended to help predict. So these hypotheses are thrown out constantly mm-hmm.
0: to mm-hmm. to
5: um, hone in on, you know, what um, meets experience in the, in the most fruitful predictive way. And sometimes that map can become very fossilized and constraining. And, and so the um, things that should be interpreted with more nuance are interpreted in, in, in very um, rigid ways. A lot of psychiatric disorders can be understood as disorders of predictive coding where a very fossilized story comes to um, capture the flow of experience. And what, what these substances have been shown to do is, is to increase the, the entropy. Um, so that that usual constraining process that orders experience is, is loosened a bit. Um, and you know, that can lead to opportunities for. Um, refreshing our narratives, use to use that phrase, or, or to open up to experience more fully. But it can also lead to such a a, a torrent of of experience that the person drowns um, and kind of mm-hmm. is seeing is seeing a cat as his grandmother and hearing on the television that um, he needs to go and brush his teeth right away, or he's going to catch cancer. You know, there you know the the usual. Mm-hmm things that um, ambiguity um, can create if it's too entropic. Um, so yeah that it can go in so many directions. you know totalizing visions that are paranoid and, and hyperconnected or, or you know an ocean of experience that, that one drowns in. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
5: Elias, we can um, reference
2: uh, Carl Friston on, with some of the thoughts you just expressed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great, the free energy uh, theory. Yeah.
7: Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's Beverly's time for questions.
1: Yes, and before, before we do go into that, I would just like to say that our next round table will be on April 30th. And you'll see what the segue here, which will be on what is the current understanding of metaphysics. So we're moving right along in terms of, of the, these spectrums. But we'd like to open up to questions either that you have already put up or that you now would like to put up. So Alex, will you read the questions that have already come in?
8: Uh, yeah, also I uh, just want to address some comments. So I just want to thank everyone who commented. Um, for Billy, I hope we address no plasticity to your liking, Um, to Joseph and Darren, appreciate your funny commentary on smoking toad venom. Darren, I hope your friend's okay after smoking the toast parotid gland or the secretions at least was entertaining. Um, And lastly, uh, to Lawrence's comments on, I guess the woke politics, I guess I would just say the politely push back that um, given how messy psychedelics are, to expect a straight-laced conversation of psychedelics I think is a bit wanting. Um, especially also if you consider the history of it. If a sociological, I guess, critique comes about that one may not agree with, I mean, that's what, I guess that's, I think comes with the territory with regards to talking about psychedelics. All right, so with that, um, I think to, uh, sorry, let me rephrase that. So one comment early on, uh, Johannes uh, Oweke, I hope I pronounced that correctly. They asked a few questions, but I think one, that I think sort of is a good addendum to something Elias was talking about with regards to people who are sort of uh, suffering from psychedelics potentially or showing the negative effects of it. They are talking about are there potential downsides to psychedelics or in particular they questioned about um, overdosing. So any is there anything you want to add to that?
3: Uh, I just say that psychedelics, if you're talking about the classic psychedelics like psilocybin LSD. They're remarkably safe from a physiologic perspective. Um, There are some psychedelics that are associated with death. Ibogaine is one um, of them that causes a potential uh, arrhythmia. And um, bromo dragonfly, there's some very potent 2 a agonists that have been associated with death. But in general, the main harm with psychedelics is in the adverse psychological realm. That they can produce acute psychotic like states, they are really problematic for people that have underlying psychotic illness like schizophrenia or, or severe bipolar one disorder with psychotic features, so we. Um, pretty strenuously rule out or screen out anybody that has psychosis uh, and in uncontrolled settings um, psychedelics have been associated with all kinds of bad outcomes, ranging from panic attacks to people engaging in dangerous behavior uh, it's not a typical that uh, you know this happens every couple of years an NYU undergraduate takes too many mushrooms and becomes psychotic and jumps off a building uh, that was one of the, the reasons why psychedelics were shut down in the 60s is you can have really bad outcomes in people who are unprepared and that their psychedelics are administered in an environment that's not safe so there you, you would think that what's going on now we're, we're kind of In the first wave of psychedelic research, there was this moment in psychiatry, they were touted as wonder drugs and then soon became demonic drugs and I fear now we're kind of in this irrational exuberance phase that psychedelics are going to cure everything and there's nothing can go wrong and um, I think we have to really pay attention to history so that does not repeat itself.
8: Uh, Okay, should I go on to the next one? Okay, thank you, Johannes. Um, Hopefully that addressed some of your questions.
5: I I would recommend um, for the purposes of of also looking beyond simply the therapeutic research and the risks that come from recreational use, um, to look at some of the experiments that occurred surreptitiously um, in the 50s um, there's a great book, um, "Poisoner in Chief," that investigates MKUltra Ultra um, and the the pretty nefarious uses that the American government had kind of dreamt up um, for how these compounds might be um, helpful militarily. Um, and um, it, it's a it's a pretty horrendous read. Um, "Poisoner in Chief," I, I, I recommend
8: it. Okay. So on to the next one, uh, from, uh, Paul Browdy. Uh, thank you, Paul. Um, so they're, they're psychiatrists and they're talking about how they refer patients to ketamine treatments and the anesthesiologist remarks, Oh, it's just the brain changes that result in the positive outcome. The more experiential effects are side effects. And so they were concerned that the patient just being in the setting playing on their phone while receiving the infusion misses the point of, of the treatment. Um, so, yeah, so how, how does that potentially affect the e- efficacy of getting uh, ketamine treatment?
5: Well, it's, you know, I, I've studied ketamine in several, several studies, primarily for substance use disorders and have also investigated the psychoactive effects. And at least in that domain, the psychoactive effects have clear significance. All of that, is with the caveat that I was approaching ketamine with the um, the recognition that it could be potentially causing helpful psychoactive effects, and so I had a, a framework in place that allowed for people to attend to those experiences potentially fruitfully. Um, you know, they were guided through a meditation first. Um, it was a no cell phone policy in my lab. You know, they, were, <laughs> they weren't allowed to be playing Fruit Ninja while while getting getting ketamine. Um, but um, all of that is to say that I, I've also had patients who um, don't seem to have any psychoactive effects, but who still have some apparent benefit. Um, you know, and, and we are brains. so I, I'm sure the brain has something to do with um, our well-being. Um, and ketamine uh, in, in um, animal models has shown um, pretty reliable effect on neurogenesis, prefrontal neurogenesis as well as increases in BDNF and (laughs) mTOR and um, those other mechanisms, which I'm sure uh, uh, Alex can speak to. So the psychoactive effects may not be crucial for everyone, but they are important to recognize as um, likely to occur. And having a setting that doesn't provide at least safety that, um, that if they do emerge, um, there's a readiness to attend to them fruitfully. Um, that I think that's crucial. Um, so calling them side effects uh, seems to me, um, you know, not only dismissing um, their their potentially therapeutic value, but also um, losing sight of their inevitability in most cases. Um,
6: for, for, if I may add, I think for ketamine, um, I, I, I would say that maybe the jury is still out, right? I, I, th- I think there are some historical um, differences with ketamine, right? By the time when it started, I think the the world or at least the clinical world, maybe, or also the big science world is maybe not as ready for a, for a paradigm that does involve kind of a and a setting or assisted therapy or to leverage that psychoactive effect. It was still a pretty much a world of uh, pharmaceutical, so it was treated that way in both the basic science study as well as the clinical trial is also run that way um, so i i i think the evidence is thin i don't think many people have tested um you know, whether some of that setting effect is important or not so um i think it's good to try to see if that's true or not
5: i should also say when i first started doing research with ketamine to echo alex's point i I was given a lot of pushback because I was approaching it with some um, eye to how the psychoactive effects might be helpful, and even hypothesizing. And this was 12 years ago, 13 years ago. Even hypothesizing that there may be a psychoactive a, a psychoactive relevance um, was anathema to the institution at the time. Um, and you know, things have shifted, and now NIH is you know open to funding. This kind of research, but yeah, the um, ketamine emerged um, very much with this biological apparatus in place. Of this will work primarily as a as a neuromodulator, as a neurogenesis promoter, and anything that it does apart from that is epiphenomenal and needs to be potentially um, taken out of the equation moving forward. Um,
2: You know, there's one other uh, aspect to this issue that hasn't been raised. I'd like to touch on it briefly. And that is um, for some patients, the notion that they need to have that uh, psychoactive effect that it's, it's an, it's a a disincentive to do it. They're frightened of it. Um, So that's interesting. That's an interesting dilemma. Uh, You know, that doesn't mean what, what, if it's if in the end it looks like that is crucial to its efficacy, then then so be it. And just like with some other treatments, people are frightened of like surgery on their gallbladder. They might you might say, well, if you're suffering enough, you might want to overlook this. It's not gonna it'll be good for you in the long term, and let's see how far we can get with it. But it is right now something that puts off a lot of people from that kind of treatment. I'm also aware that in the actual practice, and I think you'll agree, this is true, Elias. Um, some of the, uh, w- when the patients start to have sort of a more trippy experience, the, the treatment tends to be do- dosed down a little bit to sort of keep them on the verge of that, let's say, not fully in that sort of trippy head state. Um, and I wonder
5: whether that's counter to its therapeutic, potential therapeutic damage. Uh, I think that varies. Um, as you know, there are a lot of so-called psychedelic ketamine clinics, right? Emerging and seizing on the the great public interest in people um, accessing these treatments. Um, And they've turned into cash cows and often will sell you four infusions up front before you've had a single one. Um, They're not so concerned about keeping people um, um, just before that tipping point. But anesthesiologists tend to, yes, be careful. They may administer ketamine with the benzodiazepine. Kind of keep things cool. Um, you know, we didn't even get into, and I, you know, I don't want to anger anyone who's upset about woke politics. We didn't even get into the 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 issue of how um, um, ketamine might provide a precedent for the direction these substances are going if we do roll them out. Like ket- ketamine is the cheapest drug available, really. I mean, it it, it takes costs a few dollars to administer but we're having these clinics charging several hundred dollars um, to primarily affluent um, white people um, and not considering how this medicine, which is generic, um, might be made more accessible to um, you know, people of, of other backgrounds with less means, how we might change the existing healthcare structure so that it might be more available, or other treatments might be more available. I, you know, there, there's a there's a concern here that if if these medicines follow the track of ketamine, you know, we're not really going to be helping too many people. I, I don't know how many insurers are going to be funding um, compensating a dyad, which is what most research has looked at, having two therapists in the room with people, several several sessions. I mean, we have enough trouble getting therapy um, um, compensated right now is psychiatrists, you know, to, to presume that insurance companies will just hand it over for a several hour session with two therapists. I, and is that going to lead to less therapy being provided and, and potentially having um, less of the interpersonal engagement that, um, you know, Neshe was talking about earlier? I, think, I mean these, these are these are really important questions and this isn't simply well, politics you know this is this is this is crucial to to answer if we're going to be providing support to people in, in the right way
4: and that that actually relates to another i think i saw a chat comment earlier about the other models that are being rolled out like with Oregon the supported adult use approach and some of the people who are advocating for that approach, which, um, you know, potentially you'll be taking psychedelics with people who have just a a GED or a high school diploma and don't have therapeutic training. Part of my concern around that is that a lot of the, we were talking about harms or dangers caused, potentially caused by psychedelics. Historically, a lot of the harms, not all, but a, a, a good percentage of them relate to you know, uh, in unscrupulous providers, people who are either not trained enough or are have some kind of personality disorder themselves, you know, antisocial or abusive personalities that take advantage of people in some cases under highly suggestible contexts like that. So I think part of my concern of how this is going to be rolled out will be to ensure that people do have you know, are not in, in, in context that put them at risk due to the the personalities in the room. Um, and I would just uh, point people towards the the Power Trip podcast that's currently going out with New York Magazine and Symposia, which is highlighting some of the the risks of harm, interpersonal harm from unscrupulous providers.
8: Uh, okay. Can I uh, Sorry, sorry, yeah, oh, go for it, you, just, you go ahead.
0: I, I just wanted to add that, in addition to all of these concerns, there's also the kinds of—I don't know what to call it—but the ecotourism of uh, that's going into kind of the going into indigenous communities to have an ayahuasca experience or these other kinds of things that raises the question of indigeneity. And um, there's an interesting institute, the Chakruna Institute, um, that uh, via Labache. Uh, is a part of, and they have a indigenous reciprocity initiative that is just raises the question about the kinds of ways in which these experiences take place and what they rely on, and the kinds of power dynamics and economic dynamics that get associated with it. I just wanted to bring that up.
5: Yeah that's a super important point. I, you know, it, it is worth. Um, remembering how psilocybin entered into um, our world or Western world is, um, you know, a banker who happened to be an amateur mycologist went down in search of this um, sacred mushroom. Um, A native woman Maria Sabina um, provided him the, the, the mushroom which he took back gave to Hoffman who then identified the active component being psilocybin. Um, but we're finding that it's in the hands of bankers and financiers yet again. Um, again, this isn't woke politics, this is this is real. And, and you know, this is kind of creating um, not only challenges with how we might um, move forward with a true paradigm shift that, that benefits everyone, um, but how we might give, give, um, give back to where these medicines came from, how we might honor um, the, in some cases, millennia of tradition and, and learning that went on to inform how we engage with these substances currently. Worth also mentioning that the person who coined the term psychedelic um, had attended peyote ceremonies. Um, in order to better understand what the, the proper engagement with them might be, um, so yes, uh, you know there's a there's a real need for um, recognizing that this isn't simply about shoehorning these substances into existing medical and social structures. That that they're revealing um, by virtue of raising raising awareness um, to longstanding problems. They're revealing. That we could be doing things differently. We could be honoring where the you know where these substances came from. We could be honoring the depth of ontological and epistemological uh,
8: complexity that they reveal. Um, all right, thank you. I could so there's a there's a bunch of questions, and obviously we're about to push on two hours. So are we feeling two more questions? So I'll have to. Probably just select two of the group. If everyone's okay with that. Um, I think that's right. Okay. Okay. So, apologies if I don't get to your question, but I think just to find questions that sort of fit what was just said. Um, uh, let's see, I'm going through them. So, Lisa uh, de Beneditis, hopefully I didn't mangle your last name, but Lisa was asking because I think. Uh, something touching that the Shea was discussing about the democratization of these therapeutic experiences, given that the lay community is potentially becoming more empowered through either training or grassroots work. And so how do you, how do you think it's going to work between um, like, should psychedelics mostly stay within the professional medical community or, you know, like how, I guess, um, like how, how do you balance it between keeping it professional and then potentially the skepticism within the medical community that doesn't see it as necessarily medical work and sort of goes more to that like folks medicine that was sort of being touched upon with regards to um, traditions of, 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 of natives and such.
4: Um, I'll just quickly say that I, I'm personally in favor of decriminalization, I don't think that I don't think that the medical establishment should be the only way that people have access to these substances. I don't think that the there's evidence to suggest that you know that prohibition is justified in any way. That said, I'm concerned with a lot of the a lot of like with the issue I mentioned with Oregon. There's a lot of certificate trainings and things popping up that are kind of meeting this need or this desire that people have to be able to engage outside of the medical framework with these substances. And a lot of those certificate programs are, can cost thousands of dollars and they're not really based on any evidence or any kind of any kind of expertise in many cases. And it's it's sort of there's a lot of risk of people just kind of trying to make a buck off of this hype and excitement. And so I think it's really important to really emphasize the science and advancing the science and getting more of an understanding of what's going on, but also not allowing medicine to be the only way that people can access these experiences. Cause there's all sorts of, you know, creativity was mentioned before creativity and connection and community building that are not necessarily like medicalized subjects that psychedelics can really um, lend themselves well to. So I would caution against a purely medical paradigm, but I would also caution against, you know, trusting any kind of group or, expert that's popping up without a background of, of evidence and kind of offering suggestions to meet this, this current need for its current desire to, to access psychedelic healing outside of the limited options that are currently available.
5: Also, we're not really in a position to be making those kinds of demands anyway. Right? People are using these substances. You know, they're, even if they're medicalized, if people are not going to restrict um, how they're engaging with them to the clinic. Um, eco t- tourism drug tourism was mentioned there are hundreds of ceremonies happening daily um just in the tri-state area I mean, the, the you know the underground psychedelic work continues to to grow rapidly so um you know I, I i think it's foolish to even think that we have any capacity to pronounce on what the right um, use of these substances is, I, you know, the, they're, they're being used. And, and I think what we should do is acknowledge that that's the case and, and start thinking deeply collectively, how we might engage with them in a way that, um, know doesn't fall into old tropes. Um, that's willing to challenge some, some really um, fossilized systems, fossilized predictive patterns let's say,
8: in our culture. Okay, I think that'll probably you have questions given the time uh, limit, um, but I just wanted to add one, one comment from my end, because someone did ask about funding, and just for their sake so they know, something that hasn't been mentioned is that I think research shows that currently for a new drug to come to market, going through all the requirements that the FDA puts forth, it's about a billion dollars and hence, as was said here, a lot of the research into psychedelics comes from the fact that they're already made and the psychopharmacinetics are already rather well known. So there's less investment needed to sort of breach the market as with a, a completely new uh, pharmaceutical compared to to these drugs. So that was f- for Smurfy D, just to get that out of the way and I guess add a little extra context. So uh, that's it from my end.
5: You're on mute, Beverly. Beverly,
2: you're on mute. <laughs> still, still on mute. Here. <laughs> and, all right. Yes, yes. Here. All
1: right. Thank you. I appreciate very much, as I'm sure we all do, your participation today. And what mostly comes forth is we're on a, a true cusp in terms of the directions and the projections and the possible vectors of what all the incredible work and research you're doing might take us. So with most appreciation for giving us these insights and knowledge and perspectives. Wish you well. I hope you don't have the storm where you are that we have here in New York, but go forth into cyclone bomb <laughs> safely
7: Thank you, everybody. Thank you all. Thank you, you everybody.